Welcome to Original Mind Zen Sangha in Princeton, New Jersey. Today's Dharma talk is given by Doshim Dharma Halal. It was recorded December 23rd, 2012. Uh, tonight's talk is going to be called Buddhisms. Right? I, I, I kind of co-opted that from uh, an author. He, he, the book was about Mahayana Buddhism, and he says that there is no Mahayana Buddhism. You could say there's Mahayanas. The more you read about Buddhism, the more confused you can get. I remember when I, I was naive and ambitious when I first started studying uh, Zen. I picked up a couple books and I engaged them. And I, and I realized, you know, I thought everything was going to be laid out in a very straightforward, uh, straightforward pattern. And a lot of the teachers or authors make it sound as though that's the way that, that Buddhism can be approached. But I, I really don't think that's the case. You're talking about Buddhism is a, is a multi-continental, cultural, some instances it's a philosophy, others it's a lifestyle, in some cases it's a religion. It, it manifests in many different forms. And... Um, it's often bewildering. Just when you think you've got, got the core of the Buddhist teaching down, another author says something else, right? Um, and so this, this can be just as anxiety-producing as the Buddha's first noble truth tells us life often is, which is, he says that life is dukkha or or dissatisfactory, I guess is the word. We don't really have a word in English that really pins it down. But it's that feeling that you're sitting there, you're at the baseball game, and you're thinking about being home. And then you get home, and oh, you wish you were back to the baseball game, and you're thinking about tomorrow. Wherever you are, it just doesn't seem right. We have a kind of spiritual, internal itch that we can never satisfy for long. And this is life. And that's the, the Buddha really nailed that one. <laughs> what I admire so much about Buddhism is it looks life right in the eye, the human condition, squarely. doesn't pull any punches and says, life is dukkha. Life, uh, life is, birth is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Disease is dukkha. Uh, having what you want is dukkha. Getting what you want taken away is dukkha. Life, death, and everything in between. Sure, we could be happy, but not for long. Like, um, consistent satisfaction eludes us. And that's what I think you'll find when you start to study Buddhism. The more books you pick up, the more uh, of dissent you're going to encounter because everybody seems to think they know what the Buddha taught. I was looking at a book this weekend, and not surprisingly, it's called What the Buddha Taught <laughs> by Rahula Wapala. Right? He's, a Sri Lankan, he's a Sri Lankan scholar and, and monk. And uh, he's fairly traditional in, in, his, in his approach. It's an amazing text. I encourage everyone to read it. In fact, I think that's going to be the, the book that I... Uh, we're starting a book study group for the Sangha. And that's going to be, I think, one of the first books we're, we're going to read. Because I think it's just a great jumping off point. But the danger is, with a title like that, What the Buddha Taught, is that it seems to imply that there's one essential... Buddhism. You know, in a postmodernist scholastic approach or literary approach would, would pounce all over that because, you know, as we deconstruct Buddhism, Buddhism itself asserts that everything's impermanent and that there is no essential 
um, core to anything. There's no soul, there's no self, there's no tableness to this. Well, then why would there be a Buddhism to Buddhism, right? And so it, 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 it collapses under its own scrutiny. And, but the, the human impulse is to find something solid. That's why we, that's, you know, we want to learn how to live our lives. Because unfortunately, life doesn't come with an instruction manual. But I think that Buddhism, I'm going to speak out of both sides of my mouth, Buddhism is about as close as you're going to get to an instruction manual to how to live your life. Okay. Now, we can just as easily fall into the pitfall of saying, well, the Buddha taught this, therefore, and, and turn it into kind of a philosophical debate. But the Buddha was never himself interested so much in philosophy as he must, as was in a practical way of living your life skillfully. All right. So we were, last week we talked about the precepts. The precepts are a model. They're a blueprint for how do you live your life. They're not be-all, end-all statements. They're not commandments. Sometimes we have to break them in order to live skillful, skillfully. The rule of thumb in Buddhism is what causes suffering and what doesn't. And so we don't kill because it, 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 it causes suffering for other beings. Karmically, it would cause suffering for us in the future as well. We don't steal. We don't lie. We don't cheat because these cause suffering. Very practical. Oh, okay. So there's, it's not that these are handed, uh, these are commandments handed down from up above, but there's a really down to earth explanation for this. And you could say it's almost the same thing as the golden rule, you know, do unto others. So Buddhism offers us a path, and that's the way that, that the Buddha himself described it. He said, you know, this is the eightfold noble path. And it exists when we, when we walk it. Or rather, when we live it, when we realize it, when we actualize it. So the, the teachings are, 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 what's the word? Insubstantial until we embody them. And so that's what we're here to do, right? Is, is to breathe life into, into the Dharma as well as to allow it to breathe life into us and to give meaning and direction in our, in, in our day-to-day experience. Ultimately, if, if, and the Buddha himself would stand by this, if, the teachings do not bear fruit in your life, then what good are they? And so dry academic reading is not going to help us. And I think the Buddha, you know, he's, he's very adept at circumnavigating around those kinds of conversations. Instead, he would bring it back to, well, how is this going to help you in your life? So we come back to our practice. How is meditation helpful? We sit here and we watch our minds moment after moment after moment. And we don't let ourselves get fooled. Fooled into what? Well, fooled into believing all the thoughts that run through our mind. That person's nice. That person's mean. This boss stinks. I should be earning more money. Those are just thoughts. They could be helpful. They could be skillful. But no matter what, they're still only thoughts. And that's what Zen in particular concentrates on. Identifying what is a thought and not being hooked by it. Our walking meditation as we walk around... I remember the first time I did walking meditation, I was like, this is so stupid. <laughs> Why am I doing this? I could be home watching X, Y, and Z. I could be doing anything. I'm an English teacher. The last thing, I, sh- I shouldn't put this on the air. The last thing an English teacher wants to do is grade papers. All right, I could be grading how many papers that walk do walking meditation. But there's a practicality to it. Moment after moment, I'm forcing myself to pay attention, to confront all those thoughts as they come up, all those sensations. And like this window, if I could open it without freezing you guys, we're wide open. We just accept whatever comes.
And I think that's the one thing that all Buddhist schools seem to agree upon. Sure, there's the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. They kind of get put on the back burner of Mahayana Buddhism. It's about letting go. It's about opening yourself up to your, your fundamental, free and open nature. What we call here, your original mind. And so you could study and study and study. I don't think you're, I, I can I put my money on it. The more you do, uh, the more confused you can become. If, if you're grasping, uh, there's that grasping mind, the second noble truth. We're grasping for an answer instead of just acknowledging, oh, this is what this author's perspective is. So all these books are just perspectives, points of view on it. And I would hope that the teachers themselves, the authors, would be, uh, comfortable enough acknowledging that what they're doing is just just, just look it's just just a, an angle of understanding the Dharma because the two the true Dharma is inexpressible no matter what it is I mean the Buddha the Buddha pretty much avoided at any opportunity explaining what Nirvana was or Nibbana as he probably would have called it he would call it the unconditioned the deathless but that was about as close as he was going to get to it because it's inexpressible. Mahayana Buddhism, which Zen is a part of, comes back and it says everything is inexpressible, right? Because everything is an expression of the absolute truth. And so uh, when, we, when we look at this table, this table itself defies all categoriz- categorization because this is the wonder and the mystery of the entire universe. Right? And so that's about as close as I can get to expressing that table. One of the practices that we here have here in addition to meditation is, is our koan study. Koan is, if, if you're unfamiliar, is kind of, for lack of a better description, a, an insolvable dilemma that, it, that a, a Zen teacher poses to a student in the hopes of getting them to understand the ineffable reality that's surrounding them at all times. For instance, like what's the sound of one hand? Or um, uh, a monk asked... Zen master Zhao Zhao, uh, does a dog have Buddha nature? And, and Zen master said, Wu, which is Chinese for no or nothing. But it's a, not a no or nothing as opposed to yes. It's a, it's, a, it's a much larger no there. So we use koans. But we also, and I think that this is one of the most important aspects of our practice, is, is our huado. Huado, we practice here, we ask, what is this? So as we sit in meditation, whether, whether, you, whether all thoughts have dropped away, ideally, or if you're just sitting there and you're asking yourself, what is this? I think that's at the core of Buddhist practice. While there are, tons, while there are many forms of Buddhisms, <laughs> there's Tibetan Vajrayana, there's Pure Land, there's Chinese Chan, Korean San, Vietnamese Tian, there's Japanese Zen. I think if you want to distill it, it's what Zen Master Sung San, who's sitting on the altar over there, who brought this lineage to the United States called Don't Know Mind. Don't know is, is our mind when it's completely and utterly free. Free of thoughts, free of categorizations, opinions. So as we ask ourselves, deep sitting here, right here, right now, we ask, what is this? If we can really open ourselves up to that don't know, our mind 
the Buddha's mind, are they the same or are they different? Don't know. There is no same and different because that's the world of thought. The moment we enter, once we try to answer that thought, it's like closing a window. But when we ask, what is this? It's opening it. So the, all these possibilities, the, the mind that asks, that inquires, especially the mind that inquires without seeking an answer, as paradoxical as that may sound, is a mind that's open. It's like a sponge. and It's, it's, it's flexible. It's pliant. Uh, whereas uh, a mind that, that wants an answer is a grasping mind. That's the mind that goes to the literature and expects a concrete answer. Do I exist? Do I not exist? How do I exist? Instead, we open ourselves up to the great unfolding reality. And it's not coincidental that uh, Tathagata, uh, Tathagata, in one of its many definitions, also means womb, means Buddha womb. And what is a womb? But, but, but the, the fertile soil for birth and potentiality. And that's where we are when we get to the don't know. Zen Master Sung San said, hey, I don't teach Buddhism, I don't teach Zen, I taught don't know. You don't have to be a Buddhist to do it. You, don't have, you could be a Christian, you could be a Jew, you could be a Muslim, it doesn't matter. You could be an atheist. Don't know is relaxing your mind, letting it go back to its original state, which is free, Empty, and not a negative empty, but it's an empty that's a vastness and a spaciousness which is you know, ultimately free. And so that's what we're practicing. And that's where I think these Buddhisms all, all intersect. That's my two cents. Is that Buddhisms come down to Buddhist, which come down to Buddha, when we are Buddha, when we, when we, when we come back to our original states. Don't know. And the way we do that is through constant scrutiny. We watch the contents of our mind come and go. Clearly, we can't be those things. If that's what I am, then I'm coming and going every single second. And that's kind of silly because how could, oh, then I just went out the, where did I, where did I come from? Where did I go? And so when we, when we delve into this, we really don't know the answer. So fully don't know. It's so freeing. Most of the time we want to know, we think we know, we feel the need to know. If I don't know, then life is uncertain and we hate uncertainty. That's that handbook in life that we're looking for. And we get to the point where we don't know, we don't need to know. And we could just accept whatever it is that unfolds. And I think that's, that's at the core of Buddhist practice, just opening yourself up whatever is arising. The good, the bad, the painful, the joyous, all of them. They come and they go like, like a river. Like wind through a screen. So as we sit here on our cushions, as we walk around the room, as we, we go to work, most importantly, when we go throughout our ordinary, our daily lives, that's what we're, we're concentrating on. As we get snagged by our thoughts and really start to believe them, which is inevitable. It happens to everybody. We ask, what is this? And we really dig into it. And we start to, instead of, instead of actually trying to grasp the situation, we let go ourselves and free ourselves into, into it. Don't know. Don't know. Ah, wonderful. Wonderful. And I think that's, that's what this Dharma is. Incomparably profound and minutely subtle. Is rarely encountered, even in hundreds of thousands of millions of ages. Now we see it, hear it, Hold and maintain it. Now, the, 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 the impulse is to say that it's something that I can grasp. 
instead of it is the one that's sitting here listening, seeing, hearing, and holding. It's that mind. Somebody asked, Zen Master Matsu said, I don't understand the great way. And Matsu says, That mind that doesn't understand is the great way. Ah, wonderful. That's the great way. Right here, right now. We think it's we that the danger, the, the the really big catastrophe that we can fall into is is assume, is is falling prey to spiritual idealism and thinking that, oh, you know, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, well he had it, I don't. Or you know, the Pope, I mean the Pope, he's got the corner on spirituality or, or the Buddha or whoever. No, it's our birthright. And that's what the Buddha taught. It's our natural state. It's our ordinary minds, our original mind. And so that's what we're trying to cultivate. Moment after moment after moment. That was Doshim Dharma Halal on December 23rd, 2012. Thank you for joining Original Mind Zen Sangha in Princeton, New Jersey. Thank you.